And every time you reorg, you basically force the people who have relationships with each other, who have uh, chains of promises or commitments with each other, either to work around the new org structure or to give up, in many cases, what's worked really well for them. Hi, welcome to the Tarun Stevenson Leadership Channel. I'm your host, Tarun Stevenson, and we are all about helping you lead, communicate, and grow to your full potential. Whether you're tuning in on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, or your favorite podcasting app, don't forget to subscribe and follow so that you can stay up to date with all our latest episodes. All right, here's the latest episode. Let's get into it. Hi, everybody. I'm here with Amiel Handelsman, and he is an author, coach and change consultant. Welcome to the show, Amiel. Thanks, Trin. Great, great to be here. It's so good to talk to you today. And I'm looking forward to this conversation because today we're going to be talking about conversation micro habits and how we can make changes to the way that we talk and we listen in order to affect change in our relationships with the people that we work with. So why don't you start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and uh, introduce uh, your background to our listeners. Well, as we were just speaking a moment ago, I'm based in Portland, Oregon, and I'm actually going to be moving soon back to my hometown of Ann Arbor, Michigan. And being in transition is one of the experiences that everybody, every leader, every team that I work with uh, is in the middle of experiencing. So I'm, yeah. I'm in the middle of that right now. Um, I've been in this field for 25 years. I got started when I was, was very young with a wonderful apprenticeship and, uh, and uh, work with teams in many different types of organizations of different sizes. It's fantastic. And so your transition, you're, you're moving from Portland to Michigan. And is that for work purposes or you just wanted a change of scenery? What's the, what's the change for you? My father and stepmother live there mm -hmm. and it is a half day drive from my wife's family, a good portion of her family. Oh, so we're good. moving for family reasons and uh, hometown reasons. Ah, oh, good. Nice. Well, I wish you well for that move. But you said uh, earlier about transition and how leaders deal with transition. And I mean, I think change is inevitable. And we are in the middle of probably one of the greatest uh, global changes or transitions from the way that we have become used to working to having to learn how to work differently and operate differently because of COVID. And uh, but change is not something that everybody likes. Uh, the, a lot of people try to keep things the same. Why do you think that people resist change when you're leading them or when, when they're going through their life? Right. Well, I do want to uh, second your comment that we live in very complex times and with COVID and the shift of many people to online and then the Everything that's having to do with uh, the pandemic has added to the stress that people face. Mm -hmm. And to answer your question about why it's difficult to change, uh, it's because there are things that we value, the things that matter to us. Uh, so that's that's one answer. And, and that it's important as leaders to recognize what it is that people wanna preserve. And that's often the things I talk about, their commitments, their immediate concerns, these are the things that are important to people. 
And so when we make change, it's important to show them how those changes can help them to actually preserve some of the things that are important to them. Uh, and then second of all, we've learned a lot from neuroscience the last 10 or 15 years that uh, our brains are really uh, mammal brains. We're humans, but we're also really wired to have fight, flight, or freeze responses. And uh, how changes are communicated, how they're led can affect uh, the degree of threat that we feel that are in our nervous system. And so uh, part of the job of the leader is to, to tell and embody a story of change that helps people's ner nervous systems to relax and also helps them to preserve what matters to them. And I'll just final, finally say, for those who are innovators and change agents and visionaries, the idea of preserving almost seems bizarre yeah. and it's essential. And that's one of the polarities is we both have to change and preserve at the same time. Yeah. Okay, that's that's interesting. Well, we're going to get into that. I'm just reminded of a quote by Craig Groeschel, who's a leader in the church space, and he says that people don't mind change. They change all the time, but they don't like when somebody else or the way that you make them change. I think that's the quote. So he, he refers to the way in which leaders take people through change, that that is what they resist. And if you can find a a way of walking people through that makes them feel like they are still in control. They're not powerless of the experiences that they're going through. They'll be more willing to go with you. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that tension between uh, the need to change and also preserving what is important to the individual? Yeah, absolutely. And I, I really like, I really like that quote, uh, a lot of it has to do with how I, as a person in an organization, interpret what's happening around me. And there, mm. we could have, a, we could probably talk for an hour about all of the dumb and idiotic things that we as leaders could do to put people in their lizard brains and mm. to have them fear what we're trying to do. Um, and that could be helpful. Uh, and uh, what my work is about, and I think what your work is about is building habits in individuals and in teams that help us to preserve what matters to us at work and in our lives as a whole, because the pandemic has shown perhaps better than evermore how connected the different dimensions of our lives are. Yeah. And so uh, when we talk about preserving what matters to us, the first job of a of a people manager. That's what I tend to work with people managers who have teams that report to them or have people managers who report to them is to actually understand what matters to people. And uh, one of the things that I help people to do is create what I call conversation micro habits, mm. which are the equivalent of uh, notes when you're playing piano or chords in guitar or the dimensions of a tennis swing or a golf swing, you know, you name a sport or performing art where deliberate practice matters, we break things down into their component parts. Mm -hmm. And that is incredibly helpful when we're attempting to understand and honor what actually matters to people. And so we can get into some, what some of those conversation micro habits are, but the very first step is to realize that each human being 
has commitments and concerns that are unique to them and to start to listen for them and ask about them. Okay. So let's, let's dig a little bit more on that because I hear what you're saying about um, helping people to preserve the things that are important to them and that there are skills and habits that we can use to minimize the fallout or minimize the opposition to the change that needs to happen. What would you say to, and you'll probably hear leaders say this a lot, is sometimes in change it's necessary to do away with things that your people hold on to. You know, the change requires you to get rid of something that they're comfortable with. Um, How do we preserve those values while still being able to move forward or to take them through the change that is necessary and do the pruning, if you like, that is necessary for growth while still not cutting them so far back that they feel disenfranchised with you as a leader? Great. So let's give a couple of examples of changes that people and organizations are asked to make. So one change that we're all familiar with is using new technology. Mm. There are whole consulting firms that have built up the last 20 years to bring in the technology and to do what they call change management. I don't use that term, but that's a term that has been uh, popular for quite some time. So when that happens, uh, people in the organization are asked to give up a certain thing that they're used to doing using a certain software operating system or even process Mm. and take on a new one. And that's important. And When we ask what's important to folks, uh, one of the models or frameworks that I really like is from the consultant, David Rock, who founded the Neuro Leadership Institute. He calls it the SCARF model. And SCARF is an acronym that stands for social needs that people have. And I'll just give a few of them. Each letter indicates one, there's status, certainty, and autonomy. So each of those three things are social needs. And what's interesting is that our brains when they don't get those things, respond almost as though we're being physically attacked. Like the brain doesn't know any difference. So if we're asking somebody to take on a new technology, we might begin to wonder, is this going to change their status? Mm. Is this going to change their sense of certainty? And if so, how can we lay out the steps clearly and say the things that we don't know so that at least people feel a greater sense of certainty, even when they're giving up something? And autonomy is one of the most important ones. And I'm only, I'm deliberately picking three to keep this short is uh, even when we ask someone to give up a technology, can we continue to allow them to have some ownership of what they do or ownership of how the change happens or when it happens? Hmm. So you can see, even when you can break down a big change or transition into what they're actually experiencing and then attempt to make those experiences uh, honor the social needs, the things that are important to them. Yeah, I I love that example because I'm going through uh, something of that kind of discombobulation with technology at the moment. I consider myself fairly tech savvy and I've always been the person in the house that helps everybody else with their technology. And um, I'm noticing more and more that software design is changing uh, to 
be more intuitive to a younger generation than to say my generation. The, the ways of working seem to be different. And I'm finding myself having to ask my 18 year old, how do I do this? And <laughs> it's the first time that I've ever had to ask for help with technology. And he said to me the other day, he said, dad, why are you being so old? He said, this is what grandma does. She asks for help with technology. Why are you having to ask for help with technology? And I'm realizing that there's a change in the design formats that they're using that appeals to, I guess, the way a younger brain thinks or what they're used to. And I'm feeling like my status and my autonomy oh, yeah. is, is being taken away from me. Uh, why do why do we do those sorts of things? I mean, is it necessary to make changes that leave people feeling alienated uh, for the bigger picture? I mean, Apple's classic at this. They just do away with things. Like they've done away with my USB ports on my laptop and I'm just, you know, I've got dongles everywhere now and I have to, you know, <laughs> and it frustrates me, but oh, yeah. I still stay with Apple because I love the product. And, and there are all these companies that love to just make massive changes that right. for a period of time really upset customers. But eventually you get used to it and eventually you learn that, okay, I've got no option. Is that a good way of bringing about change? They're almost forcing you to, to change without your consultation. Is that good or is, are they actually doing it in a way that could disenfranchise their customers? Well, I'm going to answer most of the time no and I'll explain more. First, I'd love yeah. to hear how did you respond to your son's question of why are you acting so old, dad, if you're willing to say yeah. That's, but I, I don't remember my response. I think I just laughed and I said, don't be rude. Um, but now it's almost like it happened. It's happened multiple times in the last two days. And I'm like, what's wrong with me? Why am I being so old? And now I've taken on that description of myself because I, I've never been, I've never felt helpless around technology. Then all of a sudden in the last couple of days, I've had all these updates on my phone, on, you know, on the streaming service that we use, and they've all changed their design interface. And I feel like I don't know what's going on. And so I'm now reimagining myself as being old and disconnected from technology, which has never, ever been the case. So, yeah, I it's, it's an odd experience. Right. Well, I think in your example, I think as we've discussed, you just acknowledge that there are this is affecting your brain. It's affecting your sense of status and autonomy. Mm. So it's completely understandable. And I have heard similar comments and my son is younger than yours. Right. My, that my two sons are younger than the 18 year old, at least, uh, would have a similar response. Now let's get to the question of whether it's smart for Apple to keep cannibalizing its own products and features. And, you know, there's a whole notion of planned obsolescence, which I, mm. I remember first hearing about from the auto industry where they switch cars every year or two. So you'd have to buy a new one. Right. Uh, I think in leaders and companies uh, make significant changes that impact customers and their workforces. And in many cases, they're uh, counterproductive and harmful over the long run. I'm, I'm mm. not going to shy away from saying that. And I'd actually like to talk about it from within an organization. Mm -hmm. um, you asked about Apple and their customers, and I had my own frustrations about, gee, if I click this upgrade, I know in six months I'm going to have to get a new version of that phone or laptop. So yeah. I'm not doing that. You know, yeah. I, res 
I resist. That was I resist. That's why we resist. Yeah. Don't make me yeah. do that. Um, and at my best, I resist without screaming yeah. at, um, you know, Apple. Anyways, uh, what organizations often do internally, particularly bigger ones, mm. and most businesses and most companies are not huge. They're small. They're 50 employees, 100 employees, yeah. 200. But just to speak about these large companies of 5,000, 10,000, 100,000, they do reorgs. Yeah. In some cases, every year they reorganize their units and their departments. Right. Very rarely have I seen that that serves a clear uh, business value. It's almost as though I don't know what to do. I know I need to do something. I need to signify to my people that I'm in a new job. I'm, I've been promoted that I'm going to do something differently. Or I need to show if I'm a publicly owned company. I'm speaking of the United States. That's my context. I know the best. I want to show Wall Street. I want to show the buy and sell analysts, you know, that I'm serious. So I'm going to make these big changes. And they don't even have to include layoffs. They could just be changing the names on an organizational structure. Far too often, I, I see that happening and nobody understands why it's happening. And what it never really gets down to are the actual change of promises and commitments that mm. are how organizations run. They happen through language. They happen through people uh, making commitments to bring about a result for a customer, mm. external customer, and then within the organization, uh, making commitments to each other to help whoever is bringing about results for that customer. And you know that happens within Apple, it happens within every organization. And every time you reorg, you basically force the people who have relationships with each other, hmm. who have uh, chains of promises or commitments with each other, either to work around the new org structure or hmm. to give up, in many cases, what's worked really well for them. So I'll, I won't hide. I'm a, I'm a bit of a critic of the uh, continuous reorg. And yeah. I try not and have all my clients be people who say to me, Amiel, could you help us uh, tell a really positive story about this reorg? Mm. Like that's not a game I want to be playing 24 seven. Now, yeah. most often I'm working with people who are managers of managers, directors, we call them, or their managers. They haven't declared the reorg. They haven't declared the change. They're being asked to socialize the change to their teams or to yeah. quote unquote roll it out. And so uh, let me just, just say a little bit more about this because this really illustrates conversation micro habits is very often folks feel like they have to toe the company line. Mm. They don't want to be a human being because if they're a human being, that means they're not just towing the corporate line. And also they feel like if they acknowledge that anybody doesn't like it, they're being disloyal yeah. to the company. So one of, one of the conversation micro habits that I help people to, to use these directors and the vice presidents is to be able to say, you know, number one, let me tell you about uh, what this change is, why it was made, how it came about. Mm. Second of all, let me just tell you how I'm feeling about this. Honestly, I have a, it's almost always a mix of feelings. Mm. And to do that, I have, if I'm going to say that, I have to be a human being. I have to yeah. say, I'm excited about this. I'm concerned about that. I'm sad about this. 
And for some people doing that feels like they're being disloyal or they could get fired. But I tell you what, I have never seen that happen. I've mm. never seen somebody, at least among my clients, lose their job or even lose their status because they share their feelings. That's different from critiquing stupid decision. I can't believe these senior people came up with this. That's mm. not what I'm talking about. The micro habit is to declare how I'm feeling. And mm. another micro habit is to invite people to share not only their questions, but uh, how does this impact you? What is this experience like for you? So now we're getting into emotional intelligence, yeah. which you think of as a different topic. It's not a different topic. It's just, no. it's a competence that comes up in every situation. And so here we're talking about inquiring, asking people for the impact on them. Another micro habit is to paraphrase. Mm -hmm. It sounds like you're saying such and such. And another micro habit is actually to confirm, uh, is that your experience or would you say it differently? Mm. Now, none of these are just, you just do by their own. They're part of an overall repertoire of leadership, but just like piano, tennis, soccer, we practice them one at a time in coaching yeah. sessions and even on the job. And then when we actually have conversations with people, they all come together yeah. and the result is to help people calm their nervous systems and realize how they can preserve what matters to them. But the devil's the devil and God is in the details. Mm -hmm. As you as you were talking, you reminded me of a, a change in government that happened in the state that I live in now. Here, the leaders of a state are called premiers. It's the equivalent of a governor, if you like. Uh, and a number of years ago, the opposition was voted in because the, the sitting government had the state in enormous amounts of debt. They had mismanaged the, the whole economy. Uh, the new governor came in or the new premier came in with a plan to fix the debt, to cut back expenditure. And everybody, he won by a landslide. He won by 70%, uh, which was unheard of. And he started making changes, which I think most people knew were necessary but within one term, he had lost his position and uh, the state had gone back to the previous government who had mismanaged the economy. And largely when people talk about that time, is they, they said that he didn't communicate his change well. He, mm. His changes were necessary. Everybody knew he had to make job cuts and spending cuts, but he wasn't able to get his messaging across in a way that helped people to digest the vast change that was necessary. And so now we've had the previous government back in power for two terms and the economy is as bad as it ever was, but people are happy with that because nothing's changed. And it's, it's a, a, a bizarre situation when I, when I think about it. People are unhappy about the economy, but they don't want the level of change that's required to fix it. And uh, so let's unpack these micro habits a little bit more. Sometimes change is necessary. Uh, sometimes it's for profit, like in this uh, case of technology, as we discussed, but sometimes change has to happen in an organization and you can't escape that what's an approach or what let's step out an approach that you might use for communicating change in a way that helps people to come along for the ride and not resist the change. Um, even though it may be painful. Great. Great. Yeah. Let me give two or three different frameworks 
and how I might apply them. The micro habits would very much depend on the situation. Yeah. Uh, it's very individual, but here are some frameworks that could be uh, helpful. One of them is a real old one. It comes from William Bridges, uh, the late educator, author of the book, Transitions, Making Sense of Life's Changes. And he uh, spoke about how with every external change, there's an internal transition that had, happens inside of us. And that has three stages. The first is the ending, the ending of the old. The second, he calls the neutral zone, where there is a lot of uncertainty, a lot of possibility. Really, people are shifting and morphing. And then there's the new beginning. Okay. Mm -hmm. The mistake that many executives and perhaps your premier made is that that person has gone through the ending, the neutral zone, and they're in the new beginning. And they assume everyone else is already there with them. Yeah. Everyone else is never always there with them. Mm. So one of the things that Bridges recommended, again, this is 20 years ago, it's still as valuable today, is as a leader, tell the story of your own path through the ending, the neutral zone, and the new beginning. Right. And so conversationally, as a micro habit, that could involve describing, for example, when you thought that the way things we're going was working fine. Yeah, I knew they had to change a little bit, but here's what I was thinking. And then I observed this, that, or the other thing happening, or I had such and such experience and I began to question that. And here are the new things that I began to see. And even when I saw those new things, I felt angry. I, we put so much into this. Why are we giving this up? Yeah. And I felt frustrated. You know, so you bring your emotions into it. I'm, I'm naming a whole lot of micro habits at once, mm. but this is all walking people through as a leader, my own transition. And then I began to realize here's what's possible with this new beginning. Mm. Here's what we could do that we couldn't do before. Yeah. And I tie it to the things that matter to people. Right. In other words, I have to be aware of how people think the language they use in their everyday lives. And I embed mm. that in this story that I'm telling. And so what does this do? One thing it does is it slows that leader down from rushing into something new. They have to recount their own story. And when yeah. they recount their own story, it's an act of humility. Uh, second of all, it helps bring everyone else along because it's saying there's, there are chapters in this book and I want to yeah. walk you through mine. And by so doing, I'm honoring, you got to go through the same thing. I'm not yeah. assuming you're going to like this right away because I didn't. Yeah. Right. And you can actually say that these are some of the things we're going to lose. These are some of the things that are going to be hard. These are some of the things I'm not even sure about. I want your input on. God forbid I should ask for input about how to do this, <laughs> right? And uh, we bring people along. And then last, we're speaking into things that matter to them. Yeah. And whether you're a business executive or not-for-profit or NGO, or you're a premier, first thing you got, I mean, you got to ask someone what matters to people if you yeah. care. Now, sometimes people don't care. We have different, I'm gonna just quick uh, side tangents here. We have different levels of moral horizon. There's yeah. me, I care about just myself, I'm egocentric. 
I care about us, my team, my family, family, my tribe, my religion, and no one else. And then there's all of us. Mm. And if I only care about me or us, uh, good luck at anything that Amiel is suggesting. But I'm yeah. assuming now those who have some access to all of us and actually can put themselves in other people's shoes, which is not in a capacity we all have, mm. then I get curious about those things. And then I embed them in this story of transition. Uh, and also I set up conversational forums for people. It's common in organizations. It's often one way, but better when it's two way for people to make sense of the changes, to uh, give input. Uh, there's more we can say about that. So it's not just, I'm going to give a series of speeches about yeah. my own inner transition, but it's setting up ways for people to talk about them amongst themselves. Great. Great. I love it. So when I look at um, change management, there's, I've found there's two schools of thought uh, that I've come across. One is more akin to what you're describing, uh, taking people along for the ride, going at the pace of your people. One of my friends says, you can only change at the rate of which you're prepared to lose people. Um, and so, you know, just be mindful of that. Um, but then there's another school of thought, and I've been in organisations that have done this. Um, I perhaps used to think like this a while ago, but I have changed my position somewhat, which is change is necessary, rip the Band-Aid off, and let's get on with it. Um, uh, I think for an American audience, it's plaster. Uh, so, the, yeah, rip the plaster off. And, uh, we have Band-Aids. Oh, have you got Band-Aids? Band we, we have the rip the Band-Aid metaphor. Okay, okay, okay. We're gotcha. good with so, that. Just rip the Band-Aid off and get on with it. And if people leave, they leave. Um, it works. It, you know, that rip the Band-Aid off method works. I've seen you, you generally cycle through your entire organization and replace right. them with somebody else. So if you're prepared to do that, it can get you results that you need. Um, what would be the downside to, say, that approach versus taking people along for the ride. Um, well, can you give me one is immediate pain, one is protracted pain. I mean, you, there's pain either way, but one of them is, is quick. One of them is elongated. What, what are the benefits and maybe negative aspects of that? Yeah. And I'm glad that you just modeled what we were just talking about, which is that you had a certain approach to change that, and I'm sure you have quite a long story that you've probably shared at different times about how you've begun to shift from that. Yeah. Uh, one is that I think we began to quantify in financial terms, the and energy and time, the cost of losing people and having to hire people. Yeah. You know, there've been a lot of white papers written the last 10 to 15 years about the war for talent and we have a lot of anecdotal evidence. Anyone who's been in an organization who's lost good people mm. knows uh, how hard that is in so, so many ways. Um, I actually really don't, I'm, I don't think I've ever worked with someone who's ripped off a, a really big Band-Aid and enjoyed it. Yeah. Right. Sometimes it's almost, you almost have no choice, but, mm. but uh Generally, there's a care for people. There's a personal loss in relationship. So let me just mm -hmm. be more be more systematic about this. One, it's very costly. 
to lose people. You can get lawsuits, for example. Uh, it's also very costly to hire people back. Third, you lose organizational memory, mm -hmm. right? Fourth, uh, bringing new people in, uh, if you care about your cultural DNA, if you care about the things that attract people to your organization and you, you lose all the, the carriers of that, I mean, there are just so many things that are, in my view, abysmal about that approach. Mm. Makes me want to cry. Uh, and so I'm laughing, but it's, I mean, I'm laughing because it's so absurd to me that mm. that would be a good idea. And there's Jeff Pfeiffer at Stanford wrote a book about 15, 20 years ago that just lays out the quantitative research-based costs of managing people like this. Yeah. I mean, yeah. there's just not a lot of evidence that it does any good. Can I offer one caveat though? Go, um, go. Here's a caveat. There are some of us who based upon our leadership style, our personality type, mm. have a very hard difficulty, let's say, letting go of someone who's not performing well or who is mm. causing wreaking havoc in the organization in different ways and has been asked to change and has been given the support and still doesn't do it. Yeah. So there are some of us who are not ripping band-aids off. Mm. We're just allowing uh, people who are wounding others to, or killing results to stay in the organization. Yeah. And so if yeah. I'm one of those people, the micro habit that I need and the actions that I need to take are very different. It's actually, oh, what is the right action here? Um, whatever it takes of me, is it, is it courage? Is it the ability to have some disharmony if I value harmony? Uh, is it willing, I have an, an image of myself as someone who never lays off people. Am I willing mm. to put that image to the test? Whatever it is, I actually need to, or to make an organizational change, I actually need to do that sooner because I've been delaying it for so yeah. long. And so I just wanted to add, does that make sense? That caveat? Yeah, absolutely. I think you, you've really hit it on the head because that's the, the other end of change management, isn't it? Where you get some leaders who are so reluctant to cause ripples or they care so much about people that they don't want to hurt people and they allow toxic uh, individuals to stay within the team and poison the, uh, the progress of the team. And so you've, you've got this spectrum of people who don't care enough and then people who perhaps care too much. And you've got to find that place in the middle where you can manage people effectively, but still understand that people are your greatest capital. And uh, yeah, I, you mentioned my backstory and I think I've always cared about people but I've probably had a, a greater, um, I guess, greater focus when I was a younger leader on my career or my progress or my achievement. And people were able to come along for the ride and I would care for you if you were on the ride with me. But as soon as you became an obstacle for me, I was able to sort of dispense with the relationship. Uh, where I began to change that perception was when I was in an organization where I had to, I had to lose people I cared about, not because I wanted to lose them, but because somebody told me I had to get rid of them. And then I found myself in a position where the people mattered to me and the pain of 
letting those people go or telling them that they were no longer required was a big, uh, I guess, wake up call for me that uh, callousness in change uh, leads to detriment in relationship. And so it really made me reevaluate how I could do change in a way that uh, keeps as many people on the ride for as long as possible, recognizing that some people are going to leave. That's, that's inevitable. And some people you will have to get rid of. But if you can maintain most of the people that are there, uh, those relationships matter in the long term because they're the people that will have your back when you need them to have your back, if you like. And so that's my backstory. But, you know, I, I hear what you're saying where managing difficult people needs to be something where you do have to rip the Band-Aid off. You can't prolong that sort of stuff because it has a, a knock-on effect for the rest of the team. Yeah, let me interject a, a comment and a question. Yeah, please. One of the things that we as coaches, and a mistake we can make is to assume that everyone else is like us. Mm. So uh, I might assume that everyone needs to learn how to take care of people more and stop ripping Band-Aids off. Or, or conversely, I might assume uh, that everyone, because I went through this myself, this is not my story, but I care, everyone cares about people too much and needs to learn how to make hard decisions. Yeah. And you and I, Tarun, both know that people are varied and complex. Even yeah. the two of us are very different. And there are a lot more variations in the world than, 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 than just the two of us. So each person is really different. And that's a mm -hmm. lesson I had to learn when I started coaching significantly around 2000, 2001, if I were to go back and look, I probably assumed that a lot of people had the same, same challenges that I had. It yeah. took me a while to separate myself from them and to really put myself into their shoes. Now, my, my hunch is that you had to go through some sort of growth in order to be able to uh, shift the way you interacted with people. It wasn't just that you were being told to do this, but you probably mm. were growing. Tell me if I'm yeah. totally off base here. No, I, I think you're spot on there. It's It was uh, a process of growing um, through the experience or growing through like those light bulb moments, if you like, when you test something because you think that it might be correct, but then when it's not correct, you have to reevaluate and say, okay, that didn't work the way that I thought it would work. What right. went wrong here? Uh, what could I have done differently? And sometimes that lesson can be hard because you don't get a do-over with people. Uh, you don't get to uh, try again sometimes, but you can take the lesson from it and then the next time you encounter it, handle it in a manner that is uh, slightly different. Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, I like that. And it, there's a distinction between the extrinsic value of relationships and the intrinsic value of relationships. Yeah. And for many of us, we see relationships for their extrinsic value. It's going to help me achieve what I want to achieve or whatever my goals are. And yeah. then we grow. And this is from me to us, as I was mm. saying, those, those relationships have intrinsic value to me. Mm. And that's, that's a very big, uh, significant shift. Okay. Let, let's, talk about in the the time we have left let's talk about the, the the two people i guess we're describing here you've got some people that care about their team so much they find it hard to have difficult conversation and you've got some people who perhaps uh, need to develop a level of emotional intelligence 
with the way that they engage with people so that they don't alienate or disenfranchise. What, what are some basic strategies? Let's start with the person who cares for people a lot and struggles to have difficult conversation. What are some strategies for that person to be able to have conversation, difficult conversations, even when it's hard? Right. Well, I, what I do with people is I start with what is the result that they want, yeah. they want to bring about with this other person or with this team. Really start with what's the end you know, begin with the end in mind, as Covey once said. And when you begin with the end in mind, then the question is, you know, how do you get there? And how is what you're doing now working? Mm -hmm. So there's a whole series of conversations we have in coaching, just to understand that the current habits aren't producing the desired results, which isn't always apparent unless that person names the desired results that they actually care about, right? And once they begin to declare a commitment to something that's different from what exists today, that can create some real energy. And particularly when they say, uh, I'm committed to this and here's why. That then is, it's actually absolutely necessary. Uh, And this is a really important point. If we're going to change our habits, there needs to be a reason to do it. It's just so hard. Like why bother? Why bother? reaching out and sticking my neck out and making myself on, and other people uncomfortable with a difficult conversation, unless it's for the sake of something bigger. Mm. So having that noble purpose or just purpose in mind, that's the very first step. And that can take a significant amount of legwork yeah. uh, initially. Then once the person has decided to do that, then we begin to ask, what are the conversations that help you to get there? And a subset of that is what are the conversations that you're now avoiding? In other words, mm-hmm. which people are you avoiding? And which conversations are you avoiding with people that you talk to every day? Mm-hmm. And then we say, if you were to initiate that conversation with someone that you're avoiding, uh, how might you do that in a way that would be enticing for them to participate? Mm-hmm. Again, remember I say, what matters to them? Yeah. And if you're gonna shift your conversation with someone you talk to every day, uh, for the sake of what are you going to do that and how might that actually happen? And so I have a series that would be a whole nother podcast of frameworks for difficult conversations. But mm-hmm. um, one of the most important ones is a, a conversation micro habit I called my side of the story, your side of the story, otherwise known as my take, your take, or my assessment, your assessment. And you just introduce, you, when you're going into a, a difficult conversation with someone, you say, listen, I want to have a conversation with you about such and such. And you say, why? Mm-hmm. It's for the sake of something positive. And very early on, you say, I'd like to hear your side of this issue. And I'd like to share my side of this issue. Why is that important? It, uh, it helps relax nervous systems because mm-hmm. basically the other person knows, oh, this person isn't going to lecture to me. They're not going to scream at me. They're not going to blame me. This mm-hmm. is a mutual sharing of perspectives or of stories. And then once you've actually done that, again, there's a whole nother series of micro habits of what do I do when I ask someone for their perspective or their side of the story and I paraphrase it and I acknowledge it and I ask for more detail. And then there's also sharing my side of the story. And um, there's a wonderful series of micro habits that allow me to do that. And you sort of bring it all, all these things together together. into a conversation form, and then you deliberately practice it over and over again. And I encourage 
the first practice should not be with the person that you're in tension with. Mm. It ought to be with uh, a trusted teammate, your spouse, your significant other, mm. your coach. If, if you know, if Tarun is coaching you or I'm coaching you, talk to your coach first and actually yeah. do some live skills practice together. Right. Um, so that's, that's that example. Yeah, that's great. I, while you were talking, I'm having all these flashbacks of when I, when I was a, a boy, my, my dad had two ways of handling us when we uh, did the wrong thing. He, he could be quite a strict person and, you know, the, the belt and the, a, a bit of shouting wasn't out of the, the question. But he also had this other mode of talking to us where he said, it's time to drum something into you. And mm. um, it might sound aggressive, but in actual fact, it was where he would take us out to a cafe and buy us an ice cream. And we had a particular type of ice cream called a drumstick. And it was when he really wanted us to pay attention and hear what he was saying, he softened his approach. He would get us the ice cream so we were less defensive. But then it was those conversations I seem to remember most, you know, the conversations when he was angry or where he was, you know, disciplining us in a forceful way. You, you, you learn to say the right yeah. things because you have to. Yes. But it was Just that approach by. of, hey, we're not here to have a fight. I'm here to have a conversation about something that's really, really important. And I think that's really what you're talking about here is there's, there's two ways you can approach a conversation. And if you take the soft approach uh, and you let people know that you're willing to hear their side of the story, uh, they're going to be less defensive. But there's going to be some point in that conversation, if you've decided that this person has to go, there's going to be a point where it's not going to be pleasant. You just have to say what needs to be said. And right. I think that point of the conversation is hard for a lot of leaders. It's like, oh yeah, but what if they react badly or what if they turn around and sue us or, you know, have some, you know, I had to let somebody go a, a few months ago. And the, when I talked to my team about it, their concern was, yeah, but what if they cause trouble for us? So, okay, well, that's a risk we have to take, but that's it's managing an, risk. That's right. It's now at a point where we've had the gentle conversations. We've given the opportunity for change. Now we just have to do something about it. So how do we have that last conversation where let's just say you've taken the gentle approach. You've, you've asked for their side of the story. You've given opportunity for change, but then you just have to rip the bandaid off to use a, uh, a tired metaphor how do we have those conversations? I'm going to have to go buy a box of band-aids just to keep up with our conversation <laughs> of uh, different sizes Indeed. for different level, different level wounds. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I should say the, the framework I was giving for difficult conversations. Um, I wasn't imagining that being a firing conversation. It was more like, okay. uh, yeah, it wasn't a firing, firing conversation is a different one. And mm. here's where I suggest you, when you're firing someone, you're letting someone go. If you have a, someone who does HR or has an HR hat on, mm. it's very important to take into consideration those concerns right. and not be ruled by them. Sometimes yeah. I feel when a client of mine is getting ready to lay someone off or put them on a performance management thing, yeah. I sometimes feel like I'm almost like I'm fighting with the HR advisor, like, cause they want yeah. this thing, but not, the, and I'm doing it. I'm always like, listen, I'm always like, listen, take into account manage the risks. We don't want yeah. you to get, we don't want you, uh, we don't want you to get physically attacked, right? By the person yeah. you're, you're, you're firing. We don't want your company to get sued, but it's okay to be a human being. Yeah. 
And often the advice of my friends in HR, um, and I've had jobs in the HR world before, mm. is almost like, don't be a human being. Right. And um, to some extent, we have to make it clear that this is final and that yeah. this is a decision. So it's not about, eh, it, it, it's harmful to people if we made a decision and we're acting like it's disingenuous. Mm. So it's important to be clear. I also think there's a place for uh uh, sharing emotion and hearing emotion again, depending upon the person that yeah. you're with. Sometimes you're firing someone and they have, they have, you know, they've caused real harm in the organization, um, and so I might feel relieved mm. that they're that they're gone. But I guess the point with with that example is that there's a point of being clear. There's taking into account the legal and HR perspective. And there's also as much as you can slowing down, taking a breath, feeling what you're feeling, even if you're not expressing it and mm. not becoming an automaton machine. Yeah. And that's why so many people are crappy at laying people off is because we, we don't have the experience of doing something that's hard and doing it as a human being. Yeah. And it's important to do both. And I just want to mention one thing about the, the two sides of the conversation. Definitely. Some of us, Air on the side of just giving my side of the story. Mm. And that was the kind of the example of your dad's first method. And mm. I think we're sort of familiar with that. Someone says, I want to give you some feedback or yeah. I'm upset at you. But some of us err in the opposite direction. When we go into a difficult, difficult conversation, all we do is find out the other person's side of it. Yeah. And they never hear ours. So yeah. again, it's different strokes for different strokes. The important thing is that both perspectives are represented and when you do that it allows you to kind of look um you know to look at it together hopefully yeah so good so good so just very quickly some some tips for the uh the leader that perhaps uh lacks a little bit of empathy and needs to dial in their relationship techniques when they're conversing what are what are some of the suggestions you can make well, the first thing that came to mind was to buy some drumstick uh, ice cream cones for tea. <laughs> <laughs> and it, I finally realized, you know, drum it into drumstick. Yes. Like I get, that was, that you was said, the... it's not as bad as it sounds. It's not only isn't it as bad, it's good. Yeah. If you're using a word that makes me think of ice cream, I'm, 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 all, I'm all ears. That's but right. that example with your dad is really uh, an important thing for this archetype that yeah. you're describing to do. It's what is gonna help other people's calm their nervous systems. Yeah. And you know what? I might, even, might not even care about them as human beings. Hopefully mm. I would. But if all I cared about was results, like mm. ah, I'm not really into relationships, I'm not really into touchy-feely, blah, blah, blah. It's, you know, I'm not really, okay. But if I wanna have a positive result and I wanna keep people engaged, I wanna retain mm. my good people, I wanna produce good results, all that kind of good stuff, mm. I've gotta understand how the brain works. And I've gotta understand what are the contraindications, which is a pharmaceutical medical term, which is like the drugs I should not be giving people. Yeah. Or the things I should not be saying, the ways I just stop doing those things with people. So that's one. And then the second, or one of the things that I can be providing just to help that person soothe their nervous system and to allow a psychologically safe space yeah. to occur. No, that's good. That's good. And and I, I think we 
we need to delve more into the neuroscience of this, but that's going to be another conversation on another day. But, right. uh, you know, just what I'm picking up from what you're saying is we really need to learn what associations that uh, some of our practices have. You know, I, if I ask somebody to come and have a chat with me and say, just come up to my office, the immediate response is, oh, I'm being called to the principal's office. Am I in trouble? Um, whereas if I say, hey, let's go and have a coffee, people relax and they have a totally different demeanor based on an association of location. Just come to my office, right? Yeah, come to my yeah. office. I'll, I could be, I could have the most beautiful, kind-hearted intentions in mind. Exactly. Just those words kills it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. And, and just, just being, having an awareness of how those small, um, small connections work for people and how not to trigger their lizard brain as you describe it uh how not to trigger their emotional defenses uh unnecessarily and uh have them in a position where they can be relaxed they can be calm and you can have a two-way dialogue and uh, get the best outcome for everybody how about come come to my office for some ice cream drumsticks <laughs> now we don't know which way that's gonna go <laughs> <laughs> Amiel, I know there's more that can be said about what we've talked about today. Why don't you tell us a little bit about some of your books and how people can get in touch with you if they'd like to know more? Yeah, sure. Uh, well, uh, my first book is uh, Practice Greatness, and you can find that on Amazon. Uh, what I really want to invite people to do is come to my website, which is amielhandelsman.com. A-M-I-E-L-H-A-N-D-E-L-S-M-A-N.com. If I knew I was going to be a guest on podcasts like this, I would have asked my ancestors to have a shorter last name. <laughs> <laughs> but I love my ancestors, so I'm going to stick with it. Good. And uh, I offer a, a free bi-monthly tips on listening and speaking as your best self. And unlike a lot of uh, newsletters out there, uh, these are actionable, customized, conversational micro habits. And so if any of you are the slight bit intrigued by what I have to say here, uh, you know, go to my website, give me your email address. I'd love to, um, to stay connected with you. And, and also, uh, I have people write to me and I write back to everybody who writes a comment to me. And some, in some cases, that's led to dialogues over, over, over years because I learned right. from you as much as you learned from me. Yeah. That's fantastic. Yeah, go go and uh, subscribe to Amiel's uh, newsletter. I'm going to do that because I found our conversation today very helpful and I know you will too. So thank you so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you and I look forward to doing it again. Me too. I love your questions and I love your presence, Tarun. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Hey, thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you got a ton of value out of that episode. Don't forget to let us know what you thought in the comments. And if you have a topic you'd like us to cover next time, we'd love to hear from you. If you know anyone that would benefit from the content that we produce, please like and share this channel. And we look forward to having you next time on the Tarun Stevenson Leadership Channel.